This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, Indigenous wisdom to protect against heart disease and stroke. What's driving early death in people with mental illness? But first, during the pandemic, we saw stark differences in how countries around the world responded to COVID. But we also saw differences in the response much closer to home between different Australian states and territories. It's reignited a conversation that's been going on in Australia for decades, whether we need our own National Centre for Disease Control. Labor made it one of their campaigning points and now they're in government. Many people in the medical field are anticipating what an Australian CDC could or should look like and what should be in its remit. One of these people is Tanya Sorrell, co-director of the Sydney Infectious Disease Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome, Tanya. You're most welcome, Tegan. So Labor said in its election campaign that Australia is the only OECD country that doesn't have a CDC. Why don't we? We don't have an entity that's called a CDC or Centres for Disease Control, but we certainly have state-based entities that fulfil a very important function and there is linkage at Commonwealth level through various committees up to the principal committee that reports to government. So if we do have some centralisation and some not, what are the benefits of centralising disease control at the national level like is being proposed? I think we need our own version of a CDC, which relies heavily on the work that the state uh, public health units do and the state governments because they are really legally charged with public health in Australia. If we have a national body, I think COVID has pointed out to us that there are some deficiencies in uh, accumulating data rapidly, that is information about bugs and about the um, epidemiology of infections which clusters are occurring and putting that together quickly at national level so that uh, policy can be informed more rapidly than it has been. But there would still be a place for a a more local response to disease outbreaks as well, surely? Oh, absolutely critical. Um, The states are where the action is and they've got to have very um, detailed and uh, well-informed capabilities, which they do have. Some states are a little better advantaged than others, particularly in the context of the new genomics technologies, that is the uh, genetic complement of microorganisms that's becoming so important in being able to track diseases, um, particularly as they emerge and change, as we've seen with COVID. So are there some models that we could consider? We know we've heard a lot about the US CDC, but that's not the only way one could be set up. No, that's absolutely correct. The US has a very large centralised body and it deals with infectious and non-infectious diseases. Possibly a model that might be more appropriate to the more networked Australian setting is the European CDC. That focuses only on communicable or infectious diseases and it's a network of uh, laboratories and units in different countries uh, that are linked together centrally a little bit in the way that I described to you would be an advantage to us previously. So this is all stuff that's sort of happening behind the scenes and I think probably most everyday Australians just kind of take for granted that this work is being done. What sort of impacts might we see on everyday Australians' lives if we were to set up an Australian CDC or equivalent? 
Well, it depends very much on what really we want to put into it. Clearly, in an acute and major pandemic such as COVID, uh, there are issues of uniformity, of equity, of information being channelled very quickly that needs to be acted on quickly. And certainly with all of the evolutionary changes that we've all seen with COVID, that also is not static. So we do need an authority to deal with that. We also, in this particular urgent situation, it would be ideal to have a body that could uh, fund research very quickly. Uh, we've certainly had urgent research funding out, but it's taken some months for it to become available. And to make it really workable and effective in the pandemic as it evolves, that might be another function of such a body. Um, perhaps I'll just stop there because uh, the rest of your question you need to repeat to me. <laughs> it was really about everyday Australians and how they'd be affected by it. But you were sort of talking there about... Um, like agility and also funding. But I wondered whether perhaps one of the things that felt like it happened during COVID was a politicisation in the response of different states to outbreaks. Would there be a function of a, of a CDC to perhaps mitigate that? I think it is important to have a, a, an authority that has a degree of independence and that can formulate its own views that provide advice to government. Now, clearly, uh, funding would have to come from government, but it's really the closeness of the relationship that's perhaps in question. I think there is evidence that politicisation of messaging did occur during the pandemic and ideally it would be uh, great if each state really had access, as I indicated already, to the um, equivalent, if you like, technology and uh, analytics processes that some of the larger states have access to. So the one of the things that would happen if you wanted to have a central body that was analysing data is that you have to have a central data repository. Are there risks mm -hmm. associated with states sending off, because it's all collected at the local level and then shared up the chain, what are the risks of having a national body of data all held in a central location? I think the concerns of, of states and populations within them are to do mainly with privacy. So as far as sharing information about organisms themselves or microbes themselves, uh, that can be done anonymously, if you like. But once you're starting to think about uh, a degree of personal information, then it becomes more of an ethical dilemma. And there has to be agreement and a very secure means of transferring the information so that it can be collated centrally, analysed and then acted upon without individuals or population groups being disadvantaged or having insecure information uh, leaked about them. Mm. What sort of time frame would we be looking at reasonably to, to do the sort of uh, consultation that would be required to get something up, just briefly? I don't think that we can do it all at once. Um, I notice the ALP wants to have communicable and chronic diseases and there are other things as well. So to answer your question directly, there are a number of key players that will have to be consulted, uh, decisions made about what's in and what's out and whether or not it's a staged process to develop. And I would have thought it could take up to 12 months to do those um, analyses and consultations. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us. You're most welcome.
Professor Tanya Sorrell is co-director of the Sydney Infectious Disease Institute at the University of Sydney. We approached the new health minister, Mark Butler, about this story and a spokesperson said that the government is currently considering a range of options with respect to a future Australian CDC model and that over the coming months there will be extensive opportunities for wide consultation. This is RN's Health Report and I'm Tegan Taylor. If I asked you what the risk factors were for heart disease or stroke, what would you say? Well, you're a keen listener of the health report, so you'd probably mention things like high blood pressure, cholesterol, maybe smoking, and you'd be right. But what about things like identity, connectedness and belonging? If you mention those, you might be right too, especially if you're Indigenous. That's according to research being done by PhD candidate Catherine McBride and Noongar woman and health advocate Vicky Wade. I spoke to both of these women earlier, and the first voice you'll hear is Catherine's. So this is a small PhD project, which is all about understanding Aboriginal women's perspectives and views on how to keep the heart strong and healthy and prevent heart disease and stroke. The project has four main parts to it. The first, we went out and yarned with Aboriginal women across South Australia and Central Australia and asked them, what keeps your heart strong? What makes it sick? And what are all the things that come into play when you think about that? And the things that we heard were identity, connectedness, belonging, having a healthy life and having a healthy body from a holistic perspective as well as having a good relationship with health services and having good health knowledge and understanding. And things like stress and worry and grief make the heart sick and put people at risk of heart disease and stroke. And we were very fortunate to have a big data set. So the second piece was using a cohort of Aboriginal women who live in Central Australia, whose health was followed over seven years and who, when they first became part of the study, answered a whole lot of questions around their social and emotional wellbeing. And so we were able to take the narrative that we developed with the Aboriginal women across South Australia and Central Australia and test that and look at what those factors were that women described as keeping the heart healthy and those that made the heart sick and pull those together and look at whether people who had strong protective factors were less likely to develop heart disease and stroke over seven years. And we found that there was a strong indication that being strong in identity and connectedness and belonging reduced the risk of developing heart disease and stroke. And then the third or the third and fourth piece is where we actually went and worked with health services to understand what was happening on the ground in terms of risk assessment and management and how the health of Aboriginal women was in community and what some of the big areas need to be. And what we found doing that piece of work was that there are a number of traditional risk factors such as blood pressure and obesity that there is a really high burden within many communities, but that there's such a little focus on social and emotional well-being in terms of the way we think about preventing heart disease and stroke and how we manage that. Even in Aboriginal community controlled services who have such a strong focus on social and emotional wellbeing, this wasn't being translated into the way we think about preventing heart disease and stroke. Amazing. So rather than you going in being like, this is what you've got to do, you're listening and then you're testing what 
you're being told and you're finding that actually it's true? I think listening to people is really, really important. The lived experience on the Aboriginal Women's Advisory Group, we all have our own story. We have our stories of stroke. We have our stories of heart disease. We have our stories of cardiovascular disease. So we know what it's like to be living with these diseases and really informing, I think, health services is really important from that lived experience and stories. I want to pick up on what Cass said around the identity, connectedness and belonging. And for many years in cardiovascular disease management, treatment, it's been from a biological lens. As Cass said, it's been risk factors, traditional, you know, blood pressure, obesity, smoking. Whereas when you really look at it, the social and emotional well-being and who you are as an Aboriginal person the way that you interpret things, so we call that uh, the Aboriginal ways of being, of knowing and doing, is really, really important. And it has not been considered in uh, management or research, really, into cardiovascular disease. So it's really important to belong, to connect, to have an identity. These are the things that were taken away from us during colonisation. So I always say that The chronic diseases that we see in Aboriginal communities, stroke, heart, kidneys, diabetes, is the pointy end of colonisation. So for 240 years plus, Aboriginal people have been not just neglected, but our access to health services have not been as good. We've been in remote areas and we know that remote areas aren't now getting funding, so the access to good quality care is not there. So we're continually living in stressful environments. We're continually worrying, grief. We're almost uh, professional funeral goers. So all the cardiovascular diseases are more prevalent in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people because of this anxiety, stress and continual worry. And also we have to consider, and it was brought up in our research around stolen generations and intergenerational trauma. So intergenerational trauma, we can't argue about that now because that's based on science. We've got through epigenetics, we do know that there is a trauma gene and it can last up to seven generations in Aboriginal families. I think it was really important that we looked at it from an Aboriginal perspective, that we looked at the lived experience Obviously, you're involved in this, you've got buy-in, but when the question is you're going out to talk to communities and they're telling you the truth, is there a feeling of like, yeah, duh, like we've known this for hundreds, thousands of years, like you guys have to write it down to make it true. Is there a frustration there about that? Oh, uh, absolute frustration with Aboriginal people's knowledges. And I mean, we've been within Australia over 60,000 years, but we've always said that the heart the brain is connected to the spirit, is connected to the land. So we've always seen health as holistic and it's not in body parts. So your community, your family, your cultural beliefs, your obligations as an Aboriginal person. So we see all this. It's a holistic point of view. And we've been trying to tell Western science and ideologies, Western ideologies, we've been trying to influence that for thousands of years The cultural and the connectedness is obviously hugely important, but equally you can't just sort of go and say, be connected, 
you also do need those health services as well. Where's the right balance here? So I think what we heard really strongly was the importance of connectedness and belonging and identity and fostering that and the flow on effects to being able to have a healthy diet, to be physically active, to have a reason to stop smoking. So we had a beautiful story from a woman in Central Australia who had had a stroke and she had many, many responsibilities within her community, within her kinship network. And she said, when I had that stroke, that was the reason I gave up smoking and I thought about how I live a healthy diet and how I get my physical activity because I have a responsibility to my community to stay strong and healthy. And that stroke really threatened that. And that's what has given me the strength to go and be healthy. And I think that's something that's really important that we heard time and time again from all of the women that we spoke to, that women are carers and nurturers and leaders within community and that that gives them a reason to go and be healthy and to make sure that they're taking care of themselves. Lots of women struggle to find the time to take care of themselves, and that was another part of the story that we heard. But when they realised that being healthy was important for them to be able to fulfil their responsibilities and obligations within the kinship network, then that enabled them to focus on what they needed to do. I think the other thing that was really important was the quality of information that people received either through the GP or through primary healthcare or through other forms of messaging. And there was a particular concern that people went to the GP, but they would get told their blood pressure number or their cholesterol number, but they didn't understand whether that was good or bad, if they needed to do something about it. And what those meds were that they got handed the script for as they walked out the door. And so there's a need to actually integrate cultural considerations and social considerations into the way that we provide healthcare so that it becomes an enabler for women and enables them to address those sort of biomedical things and tackle things like overweight and obesity to think about how they're being physically active and eating healthy. We just did the third edition of the Rheumatic Heart Disease Guidelines, which we launched last year. I'm the director for Rheumatic Heart Disease Australia. Mm -hmm. And in this guideline, it's the first time ever in Australia that I know of that culture has been embedded in evidence-based guidelines. And I think going back to your question, Tegan, that I don't want just culturally safe care. I want culturally safe care, but I want evidence-based culturally safe care. So if I'm going into hospital and I've got a hypertensive crisis, my blood pressure is so high, I want the right medication that's going to bring my blood pressure down. If I'm going into hospital and I'm having a heart attack, I want the right medications to prevent the heart attack. If I'm having a stroke, I want the evidence-based treatment for a stroke, but I want it to be delivered in a culturally safe manner. And I don't think you should compromise either. I think there should be a good balance between evidence-based care, and we know that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people suffering from cardiovascular disease do not get evidence-based care. 
We need evidence-based care in a culturally safe manner and I don't think either should be compromised. Absolutely. This looks like you've surveyed in this particular study mostly women from Central Australia, but Vicky, I know at least you work in this space across the whole country. You do see this as being like generalisable to Indigenous groups all over the place? It is generalisable across all Aboriginal community. We have a lot more common, I think, than we have things that are not common in Aboriginal communities, particularly Aboriginal women. You talk to any Aboriginal woman across Australia and she'll put her family first before she puts her own health needs first. So this study, PhD, that Kat's doing absolutely can be translated across almost all Aboriginal communities in Australia and probably some of the other culturally and linguistically diverse communities. The recommendations from the study and the results from the study can be generalisable, I think, to other Indigenous people worldwide. Finishing off there was Vicky Wade, a Noongar woman who is the Director of Rheumatic Heart Disease Australia and is on the National Close the Gap Steering Committee. Vicky was the first Aboriginal person to receive the Sydney Sachs Medal for her contribution to the Australian healthcare system. And Catherine McBride, a non-Indigenous woman doing her PhD at Wardley Paringa Aboriginal Health Equity Theme at the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute and the University of South Australia. Over the past few years, research on links between mental health and early death have drawn some disturbing conclusions. Having one mental disorder puts you at increased risk of developing another. People with mental health problems are also likely to have problems with their physical health and they're also more likely to die earlier. If you're already grappling with mental illness, this might be the last thing you want to hear, but with data becomes the opportunity to make tailored interventions. Here to talk about the research is John McGrath from the Queensland Brain Institute. Hi, John. Hi, Tegan. So how do mental disorders tend to cluster? What patterns are you seeing? Well, we um, looked at this very closely. We did a, what we call an atlas or a comprehensive um, review of this. We, we, it's been known for some time that things like anxiety and depression tend to go together um, and things like schizophrenia and substance use problems like alcohol abuse may go together as well. But our study which was based in Denmark, showed that actually all mental disorders tended to go together. And we were able to map that very closely and uh, provide that um, to help um, clinicians treat better and also people with with lived experiences uh, um, better manage their own health. Can you predict future mental health? Not at the individual level. We don't have a crystal ball, but at the population level, we we do see some clear predictors. So if, for example, a young person comes in with a depression, then their risk of having an anxiety disorder is, uh, is, is substantially higher. Uh, over the next few years, or their risk of developing a substance use problem is higher as well. And what we'd like to do is, and what we have done, is is put that into a, um, a user-friendly format. I was really interested in your previous speakers, Vicky and Catherine, about how they're how they're insisting on on, on better educational material, and that's what we've done as well. We've got uh, interactive data visualization sites where you can look at a certain sex and certain mental disorder, and um, and see what the what the risks of developing other mental disorders are. And uh, it's a lot of information. It's a bit hard to swallow all in one go, Tegan, but mm. but we, we think that evidence is better than ignorance and we want to map this out so consumers or people with lived experiences and clinicians have the, all this data at their fingertips. 
Right. So it's not that it's a fait accompli, but it's helping people to not be blindsided if they receive another diagnosis down the track. What what constitutes a mental disorder for the purposes of your study? So we we looked at treated mental disorders in in Denmark. So we have the common everyday common colds of mental disorders like anxiety and and depression and and substance use. And we have the more serious uh, disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So we did the full spectrum of ICD-10 types of disorders. And substance use as well. So can you talk about the link between poor mental health and poor physical health? Well, th- we did the same thing with uh, um, a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine where we had 10 broad categories or chapters of mental disorders like all mood disorders or all anxiety disorders and then we linked them up to 31 types of, of physical disorders and again we found quite strong linkages that were differed by sex and, and duration since the prior disorder. There were things like if you have a, a mood disorder then your risk of having a stroke um, in the next 10, 15 years. We could calculate that. It it might be a twofold risk in the first year after the onset of your mood disorder. Um, And we were able to also look at absolute risk. So of those people with mood disorder, what proportion of them will actually have a stroke at 15 years? It's actually fairly small. It's uh, it's only about uh, 8% of people with mood disorders will have that. So these figures are uh, um, a hard role to, 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 to absorb in, in, in one go, but we, but we found differences between sexes, difference between types of mental disorders and differences between types of uh, uh, general medical conditions. So it's a cause and effect relationship, is it? If, you're, if you have a mental disorder, it's putting you at increased risk of physical Health. We, we we would not say that. We're, research is very cautious about uh, the causal relationship. These are correlations or associations. So sometimes you can you can see that someone may have, say, a social anxiety disorder, and that that makes them tend to drink alcohol more to reduce their stress, and then they develop a type of uh, alcohol addiction, for example. But but often it's uh, the, the two disorders may, may go together because of shared environmental risk factors, such as early childhood abuse or shared genetic factors also play a small role in there. So it's uh, we wouldn't say does first the, the first disease causes the second disease, but it could be a range of other shared factors. And also, Tegan, sometimes it's medication. So if you have a disorder that that needs medic strong medication that may make you a bit uh, sleepy, you you may have less physical activity, and also poverty, Tegan. Many people with mental disorders find it hard to work or, or work continuously, and then that, so they have less income, poor diets, smoking, less physical activity. Very much the same theme that you've just been talking to Vicky and Catherine about. Yeah, we so, were mentioning the link between smoking and poor uh, mental health in young people just a couple of weeks ago in the health report. So, what does research like this allow us to do in terms of screening and interventions? Just briefly. Well, I, I think it, it, it provides the data at the fingertips of the clinicians. So they, if they have a young person coming in with their first episode of depression or anxiety or substance use, you can open up a, a, an online site, like a risk calculator. Many of your listeners will be aware of these now. You could go in to your general practitioner and get a risk calculator from the Heart Foundation. And then you could sit down and talk to your clinician about, well, I think I need to exercise more 
or reduce my alcohol intake or take uh, lipid-lowering drugs. So these are the things we want to do with mental illness as well. And some of these things are preventable. If you warn people, you have a particular risk of alcohol addiction, so please be careful with that. Or if someone's at risk of having an anxiety disorder, you may be able to equip them with various cognitive and behavioral techniques to deal with that. Or even if we don't have preventive treatments, the clinicians and the family members and the people living with the disorders can monitor and capture very early if second com- secondary comorbid disorders arise later. Forewarned is forearmed. John, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Professor John McGrath is a researcher at Aarhus University in Denmark and the Queensland Brain Institute and is director of the Queensland Centre for Mental Health Research. That's the health report done and dusted for another week. I'll be back with you again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.